This is the Waters and Harvey Show. I'm Darren Waters. And I'm Marcus Harvey. We hear a lot about the challenges communities of color continue to face in American society. Perhaps one challenge that fails to attract significant attention is the decline in marriage and marital opportunities for African-American women. The recent publication of the book Black Women, Black Love by Dr. Diane Stewart is certain to change this. Marcus and I will be in conversation with Dr. Stewart about her new book on today's show. Marcus, I think that this is going to be a lively conversation. Indeed, I think this 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 will cover a topic that has long been in need of serious investigation. It it really has. And, you know, Marcus and I, first, we want to just say that we're grateful and thankful to have you all join us again in the audience. It's great to always be here with you, to hear from you all. Marcus and I continue to get great feedback on some of the shows that we've done in the most recent past. I think, Mar- Marcus, this is a bit of a departure because we've been asking this continuous question mm-hmm. around who we are. Are we and who do we want to be? I think people have gotten uh, used to that framing the conversations. But today we're not really talking too much about that, those particular questions. Mm-hmm. We're kind of going in a different in a different direction. You know, talking about the issue of marriage and personal relationships is clearly a different topic us. You and I both said as we were doing show prep for today's show that apart from discussing our own relationship with each other and how how great that has been, especially for us us professionally, that uh, generally when we talk about relationships, we've been talking about the larger collective relationship Mm -hmm. that we have as people in our society. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I I think it's important to remember that the collective community uh, relationship, if we can use such a term um, that is made possible and constituted by these micro level personal relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Which I think directly affect um, the, the, the nature and quality of the broader sort of macro collective community relationship that obtains in the broader society. And so um, I think it is probably appropriate and, and high time, right? That we kind of zero in um, on, on this issue of, of the interpersonal and how and how the interpersonal um how the quality of the interpersonal um can directly impact influence um you know the broader sort of social collective uh dimension so i think it's 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 highly appropriate that we that we um address the interpersonal um, right and you know marcus and hearing you address it that way I'm prompted to really think about, you know, you have raised in in previous shows this issue of our ability to get to know one another. And that story is the entry point into building relationships mm-hmm. and especially relationships that really matter. And listening to what you just said, I'm sometimes wondering, it made me wonder about how well do we know the people who we occupy space with mm-hmm. in our own homes? Do mm-hmm. we really take the time to get to know one another? You know, I can't help but think here of my own family. You know, we've got my mom, we've got my father. I have four siblings. And, you know, since we've kind of all been adults, we've all have different lives. And I, there's a lot about our individual lives um, as siblings that we, and especially as adults, that we don't really know about. Uh, each mm-hmm. other. And I do wonder how well we do with having those conversations with each other 
understanding and listening to what their experiences and our individual experiences have been as we are adults and how important that is to the impact these relationships have on the larger society. Yeah. And, and what, what comes to mind for me is, is the, the fact that in, in our society, we certainly are encouraged um, in a number of ways to, um, to seek relationship, right? Um, intimate relationship, um, friendship-based relationship, et cetera. Um, we're told, right, from childhood um, that that communication is important, um, but 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 that message is rarely, if ever, accompanied by um, a focused by, by focused uh, instruction, by focused conversation about what constitutes effective communication, what constitutes meaningful communication within the context of an interpersonal relationship. Right. Um, what would it mean going back to our earlier conversation about story? What would it mean to 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 lead um, in that sort of instructional moment with the importance of story? Right. Do so I that so that the interpersonal um, <clears throat> is is nourished by a willingness to share experience, mm -hmm. to share story. And that and that can become a kind of communicative glue. Right. That holds together the interpersonal. But that but that but that 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 way of talking about communication within the context of the interpersonal, I think is largely absent um, <laughs> in our society. And so, and so um, it's something that I think needs to be um, acknowledged. Yeah, and repressed. You, you, you are right. You and I spend a lot of time critiquing American society. I'm listening to you again and appreciating, you know, how brilliantly you went into this uh, into this discussion are, as I've called it, a soliloquy about the importance of relationship. We've mm -hmm. been talking with, you know, one of our colleagues, Dr. Meredith Darster, about this as well mm -hmm. and talking about what it takes to actually build relationships. And Marcus, time is of the essence here. I mean, mm -hmm. time is important. Important. Taking the time to actually listen to one another, mm -hmm. taking the time really to, to to listen. I mean, and I think about American society that American society is so structured as being fast paced that we don't really want to give even relationship time to really develop and marinate in a way that would be beneficial not only to us as individuals but to the health of the relationship and to family life. I think in this country. So again, I think this is another critique of American society and how mm -hmm. we look at time. And, and I kind of hate to put it in, in, in terms that may seem capitalist or, or monetary in a sense, but, but, you know, I, I think that, um, so, so, you know, you were just talking about the importance of, of, of listening to, to, to those in relationship, listening to your partner, et cetera. Well, listening is really a, a kind of investment, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you, you have to be willing to make that, that practical investment within the context of the interpersonal. Um, as you pointed out uh, when you were talking about time, will, listening requires time, right? You have to make an investment of time and also um, the energy required to engage, right? So mm -hmm. time, engagement, um, you know, these are sort of the ingredients of, of the kind of investment required to listen in a meaningful, effective way within the context of the, of the interpersonal. But again, um, I would kind of go back to the point that I made earlier. Where, where in, in, in at least in popular American society, where sort of in our common social experience, do we encounter um, uh, uh, messages, forms of instruction, um, advice, uh, wisdom, et cetera, that sort of 
that that illumines for us, that that tells us what it means to listen well, mm-hmm. that teaches us how to listen well. It, I'm I'm hard pressed to, to to point to a source where I can go to for that. Right. So um, and and I think that just contributes to um, really the 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 kind of I, I would argue impoverished model of relationship mm-hmm. that pervades uh, American society. So. Yeah, M- Marcus. Another thought that I had here as I was listening to you too in in our critique of American society. First, we got this issue with time and how we like for things to happen quickly. We're not very patient people. And the second one mm-hmm. is the second thought that I had here was you know how does the culture of individualism in mm-hmm. in American society impact the way relationship develop relationships develop do we because we're so individualistically driven in this country it doesn't i don't see that as being necessarily conducive to taking the time to, mm-hmm. that it takes to actually get to know one another and to develop the type of relationships that will be healthy and the type of relationship as meredith has has said in the conversation that we had with her the type of relationships that truly matter mm-hmm. and and we have to say again that 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 individualism is birthed and nourished by the American capitalist ethos, mm-hmm. right? And so, so within this context of American capitalist individualism, we're encouraged to pursue relationship. Well, <laughs> when you're encouraged to pursue relationship from, from, from within that context, well, how does that impact the way you view the other person, mm-hmm. right? So is, is the other person, uh, uh, I mean, is it, is it, is it are, are we are we encouraged to see the other person truly as 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 a human being that we should make an investment in that we should listen to that we should be um, shaped by all right vulnerable enough to be shaped by or or is it more likely that uh, that we're sort of socialized through this American capitalist ethos to view the other person, even within the context of, of, of an interpersonal relationship as a kind of utility, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A kind of utility that, um, that can be um, engaged in a way that ultimately serves our own individualistic yep. agenda. It is. Um, and and I, I don't, I, I think that tends to be the case most of the time. Right, um, right with respect to, to interpersonal social experiences in this country. Right. And I, I know that we, we've talked about capitalism at nauseam on the show, but you really cannot get away from it. I mean, it, it, it is a, a definitive structural and ideological um, ingredient mm-hmm. in American society and life. Right. And, and, and if we're serious about, about really um, unpacking, understanding, and refining how we think about relationship, we have to deal with that squarely. Right. Well, Marcus, I want to thank you for that. You know, that's another very good point to make. And I think it's a, it's a topic that we need to come back to in a much more deeper way to talk about the American capitalist influence on, on how relationships and even how our society has been structured. I mean, think it's a it's not a conversation that we as Americans, again, I will argue, are really open to actually having. But I think it's important for us to have that engagement. But again, we want to thank you all for joining us in the audience and remind you again that you 
listening to the Waters and Harvey Show. Marcus and I are glad to have you join us today. We are here with a very special guest, and we're going to turn to that. You know, you many of you have probably heard Dr. Diane Stewart's name on the show before because she is someone who is very close to Marcus, and I think by default, I feel very close to Diane as well. But Diane um, actually is the, is a professor of, of religion and African-American studies at Emory University in Atlanta. She has her master's in divinity from Harvard Divinity School and a PhD in systematic theology from Union Theological Seminary in New York City. But also, if you all, those of you who are familiar with her name and having heard Marcus and I talk about <laughs> Diane before, you know that she was also Marcus dis. Marcus's dissertation advisor. She helped mm-hmm. to actually guide his work when he was a student, a PhD student at um, at Emory. We've had the opportunity to have Diane on the show when we were doing it at a previous radio station before. Mm-hmm. This is the first time we've had her here with us at Blueberries Public Radio. But Diane, we want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. It is really, really good to have you. Even though we're all looking at each other on screen through Zoom, it is really good to see you again. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me back. I always enjoy the conversation with both of you. Yes, and, and, and I have to say, as I always do, I'm, I'm so honored to have my, my former advisor here. And for those who have not heard me say this, um, Professor Stewart is my, is and always will be my intellectual mother. So uh, I, I owe a debt to her that can never be paid, uh, never be repaid. So thanks so much for, for, for joining us again. Once again, Dr. Stewart. My pleasure, my pleasure, Marcus. You're too too kind. <laughs> and Diane, I have to say, you know, just for fun, Marcus and I are always using some time on the show to rib each other in in some way or another. <laughs> and see, I know you hold all of the stories, which are, are humorous, <laughs> as to uh, his trajectory through his PhD studies at, at, at Emory University. So at any moment and any time during today's show that you want to throw a little something in, you know, give me a little bit more ammunition that I can use against him from time to time, please feel free to do that. <laughs> now, 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 brother, that's supposed to be discussed pre-show, not during the show. So <laughs> you're well, ratcheting I, things up now. <laughs> that's it. Well, I had to get it in. I, so, Diane, just tell, before we jump into talking about your new book, and let me just say congratulations on yes, the, publish, congratulations. the publication of this new book. How have things been? I mean, I know that you're at Emory University. You've been going through the, this uh, COVID uh, pandemic with all of us, probably teaching classes online. How are you and your family doing through uh, through this this moment in history that we're going through? Thank you so much for asking, um, Dr. Waters. I we're doing well. We're doing well. My direct household is is doing quite well. My niece, um, who goes to school in the area, has been living with us since March, and that has been wonderful to have her here. Um, I taught. I finished up classes like all of us, I'm sure, um, in the spring online, but I was scheduled to not be teaching this semester. So believe it or not, I've had a semester of not, I'm I'm not on leave. So I am participating in meetings and running the Mellon program and all the things I do, but I'm not actually teaching. So I have to now get geared up for teaching two classes, an undergrad course and a graduate course um, in the spring, starting um, end of January. So I've I've been spared um, having to do all of this through Zoom. 
for this semester, but it's coming, it's coming. And then my wider family, we have been um, doing family Zoom meetings. All of my siblings, my parents, their children, we were meeting every Saturday and we would talk usually for two or three hours. And now we've pushed them back to just once a month. We, we just can't do it every weekend like we used to, but that has been wonderful. And that's helped us to, to cope. Well, I know Marcus has become something of an expert on Zoom through through the uh, the <laughs> last semester, there. you know, which and it's been interesting to hear his discussions about how that um, just how that experience has been for him, because I think both of us, I haven't been teaching because I've, you know, been pulled into administrative duties. And so I have I did do one uh, independent study with a student over the course of this past semester. So it was it was not like trying to teach an entire class uh, via uh, Zoom. But Marcus, I know we both were talking about how we're such people who like to be in person with our students, and you know the bricks and mortar model. But uh, Marcus, I mean, your your um, your experience with it was not as bad as you thought. Yeah, I, I would say, as I said on previous shows, um, overall, and, and and the semester has pretty much come to an end now. So I have some I have some 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 perspective. Um, um, teaching wise. Um, the delivery of the material, the the depth of engagement, was much better than I anticipated going in to the experience of teaching um, strictly on a remote basis. Um, however, I will say that um, I guess from a from a social perspective, because there is a there is a pronounced social dimension to the teaching moment within the context of, of the traditional brick and mortar um, environment. Uh, that that sort of social um, aspect was absent in my experience. And, and, and there was something, or largely absent, there was something constraining, um, something confining about being forced to, to, to try to create um, engagement over this, this, um, this, this distant digital platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think I'm still processing um, uh, what I've learned about teaching remotely over the past uh, 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 semester and, and what I'll do moving forward um, should I have to do this again. All right. Well, you know, Diane, we, we don't want to belabor this. We could talk to you all day just, as, you know, on a personal level. But uh, Marcus and I were glad to have, the, you know, again, we're glad to have this opportunity to talk to you about your new book. I mean, you as a theologian, you know, have written specifically about religion, especially looking at, you know, as Marcus does in his own uh, in his own work, looking at really indigenous uh, African religious traditions, looking at, you know, pre-Western contact uh, of how uh, religious systems looked for people of African descent uh, prior to their contact with the West. I have learned a lot from Marcus in just our conversations around his own work. So when I got this book, uh, Black Women and Black Love, America's War on African-American Marriages, I saw this is a different, a whole different area, although you touch on religion in this book, and I'm hoping that we can get to that a little bit as we kind of talk. But I'm curious to find out from you, I think both Marcus and I are, to, to find out from you, what prompted you to write this book? Yes, it's a great question because I really went far beyond what I typically write about as a scholar. Well, 
many years ago, I decided to teach a course called Black Love. I think Marcus might have been at Emory at the time. Um, this, and I started to do research on the course in 2003, and I taught the first course in 2004 as a seminar. And I wasn't going to initially include a section on romantic love because I thought that it would not be taken seriously. I thought it would compromise um, the reputation of my class. And my teaching assistant actually encouraged me and really pushed me to do it. And so I did. And so as I began to look at the material, I couldn't believe what I was reading. On some levels, I should have been able to believe it because I had been having this conversation with Black women from all walks of life, all age groups, since my own undergraduate days about the difficulties of finding um, prospects for love, for, for companionship, for marriage. This ongoing conversation had been happening on a personal level. It had never not been a part of my adult conversations. And yet here was the research to show why some of this was happening. But what I noticed when I when I uh, started reading a lot of the social science research, and which was, of, of course, inward facing, very academic, disciplinary work, um, they look at specific questions, um, they're looking at particular time periods, particular um, demographics, particular regions. And so they're asking the question, um, often in a contemporary context, or at least since the 1960s when black marriage rates began to, to fall significantly, or, or let's say the mid 20th century. Um, and, and of late, some historians have actually done work um, on black marriage as well. And they might look at slavery in the 19th century or um, um, others might look at the black family. We've had quite a bit of work that looks at the black family and marriage and coupling com comes up in, in those contexts as well. But what I didn't find was any book, and, and, and I began to develop this perspective the more I read, the more I thought about things, the more I put uh, different materials in conversation with one another. I didn't find any materials that were public facing that, that could speak to the broader community outside of our disciplines, that's beyond the walls of the academy, but that also looked at the arc of what I came to call forbidden black love. Uh, from, from 1619 to 1919, when I literally submitted the last version of the book for publication, right? This, like, you know, I'm sorry, 2019, why am I saying 1919 to 2019, right? These four centuries of mm -hmm. black people's um, involuntary presence in America and the impact of structural racism, anti-black racism, white supremacy, not just on black people general existence and experience, but literally on their love relationships. I felt mm -hmm. that that deserved attention. And, and that's what led me to, to ultimately write the book. One of the things that we see, um, Daryl, is that a lot of Black women often internalize their um, failure at um, securing love and marriage and believe that there's something wrong with me. And many of the self-help books that are out there treat the problem as a personal issue. There's nothing wrong with self-help. Yeah. But I think when we only focus on self-help, we eclipse this other picture of what's been going on 
its historical foundations, um, its um, socioeconomic, political, personal implications. And that's what I wanted to look at in the book. I wanted to look at the systemic and structural causes of what I call forbidden Black love, right? The factors that make marriage um, or love and coupling difficult, delayed, or impossible for millions of Black people. And I tried to do that through the eyes of Black women. And, and, and Diane, I did just one 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 quick follow up question. So you so you talked about how um, discussions that you that you looked at as you were thinking about the book, as you were teaching your class, um, tended to focus on very specific questions. Um, they were not public facing, as you said. Um, I'm curious to hear from you. Why do you think that is? I mean, especially given um, given how uh, how I guess yeah. I, I, given how widely known um, or how well known um, the, the, the violent impact of slavery upon the black family um, was. Um, why, why this sort of dearth of conversation um, that, that is not more public facing? And, and Diane, and, and, yeah, and Diane, before you respond to that question, I'm thinking, I, you know, we're, we're all academics here. And I know that mm-hmm. I, I'm constantly reminding myself that we do live within a inside a bubble. Mm-hmm. And so as you were talking just a minute ago, you know, in response to that first question, you know, I couldn't help as I was reading your book to think about Herbert Gutman's book, um, The Black mm-hmm. Family and Slavery and Freedom, which is one of those books. So I'm wondering, even in in, in Piggying back on Marcus's question there, and uh, as well, how well known is it of how how the the violent experience um, that African Americans have been through? How well known is that by the by the larger public, and is it just kind of ignored, and that people don't want to want to really accept that this has really impacted you know family relationships and marriage structures among African Americans? Absolutely. I think I think you've both already hit it on the nail in some respects. I mean, first, Marcus, a lot of these social scientists are actually doing their work right there. This is the, the, the issue they've taken up, um, you know, re- black relationships or black marriage. And they're having academic conversations about this with their peers. Right. They're trying to advance the research. And let's face it, um, their studies will eventually impact probably policy, at least some some persons. So there, there are probably ways that these studies are being um, um, accessed, right, in in other public arenas. But when we think about the popular everyday conversation, um, there are conversations out there, right? There was a huge nightline report on why are so many unsuccessful Black women not getting married back in 2009. Um, We see it. If If you do a search, you will absolutely see many public conversations by journalists, um, by talking heads, by, but not necessarily scholars who are trying to write publications for the public. Some have, and some will do an op-ed here or there or something along that line. But I, I think what's different about my book is that I, I went the length of, of basically saying, and I think this is where scholars want to be careful, um, of basically saying, I am not necessarily arguing causality across the centuries, that 
everything that happened during the slave period that we can see um, it threaded throughout Black experience up to 2019. I'm not necessarily saying that, but what I'm saying is that the phenomena that we see, these barriers that we see presenting themselves during slavery to healthy Black love and marriage, we see similar barriers in other periods. I don't care if, it, if I can say they're causal <laughs> or whether they're epiphenomenal, but what I can tell you is they keep coming up. And, and I saw three major, well, really four major pillars, but one is the result of another, right? I saw the separation of Black couples, Black, black um, marriages, and Black families. And that really begins with the slave trade itself, because when we look at the ages of Black women that were being um, um, transported across the Atlantic for sale in slave um, markets, um, most of those women would have been married. They would have been um, separated from husbands and children just by virtue of their age. Um, so that begins really on the slave ship. We see what I call racist, sexist, or misogynoir, using Moya Bailey's term, misogynoir legislation, or the implementation of so-called race-neutral legislation in racist and sexist ways um, that impact Black love and marriage. We also see the reproductive and sexual assault, reproductive and sexual violence against Black women and its implications for love and marriage. And then in relationship to that, beginning in that slave period, and really on the coast of Africa too, um, is what I call colorism and phenotypic stratification, CPS. Now, colorism is a form of phenotypic stratification, but I, but I, I, I risk redundancy because we're so used to using the word colorism. We use it all the time. Everyone knows what that is, you know, discrimination on, uh, against skin color. But we also have been trained, have been kind of socially programmed to discriminate against one another based on the shapes of our noses, the shapes of our lips, um, our body shapes, um, our, the curl patterns in our hair texture. Um, and so I want it all in there, not just colorism, but the wider phenotypic stratification. And so what I know Notice is that I could trace these pillars of forbidden Black love across um, Black people's experiences in American history. So for me, that was the justification for making the argument that we have to go all the way back to the slave trade and slavery to treat this problem fully. I know some historians and sociologists might feel a little uh, uh, cautious about whether or not I'm arguing causality. I don't care about arguing causality across every period, but what I say is that these pillars, these phenomena continue to show up in Black people's experience, if that makes sense. And, and I'll just say quickly to, to your question, um, Daryl, that I think sometimes I wonder because I worried that in doing the chapter on slavery, people would say, oh, goodness, we know all of this. I'm tired of this. I'm, but I'm, I'm hearing really positive feedback from folks. People are telling me, even scholars, I learned things from that chapter on slavery. There were things I wasn't really aware of or I didn't know. So I, I, I think the way America, this nation, has been um, committed to an un to, to to a forgetting, right? To 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 not remembering its past, um, to sanitizing the violence and the terror that people of African descent experienced in this country across the ages. Um, 
it means that we can never speak enough or as broadly about these issues. I still believe, um, Daryl, that perhaps a wide swath of the American population have no real understanding of the the range, the degree, and the um, the uh, repetitiveness of the violence and the trauma that African descendants have experienced in this country since slavery. Man, I mean, Diane, you're you're making me want to just have a a discussion here on just the historiography on slavery oh. <laughs> and how that has really developed over the years. Because I'm I'm listening to I couldn't help but in 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 listening to your response to those questions to think about, um, I think in the late 1950s, uh, it was Stanley Elkin's book, Slavery, which was an institutional uh, study, which was um, which was published published in the late 1950s. And I think again, in the late 1960s, right as the black power movement is starting. And the response to Elkin's book was not, it was not well received, especially in its later publication in the 1960s. But one of the things that I think that was at the heart of that work was his uh, his him making the point that the slave experience had had um, had legacies that had not been undone, that it, it, it had impacted the continued development of the African-American community. And it seems like we've kind of come full circle while there while there wasn't a great response to Elkin's book, because I think it led to the publication of uh, to Herbert Gutman's book on the black family and slavery and freedom. And then later, John Blassingame's book on the slave community to see how mm-hmm. there was some sense of, of community that was built within this in enslaved societies. However, it seems to me that we've be, we've come back full circle because I'm thinking here of uh, Joy, uh, the Gary's book, uh, which was self-published called uh, post-traumatic slave syndrome, where she's making a similar argument that you're making here. So, you know, and Diana, as you were talking about doing a search and how many people, even in the public square, are talking about uh, the decline of marriage and marriage opportunities within uh, for, especially for African-American women, I'm just wondering, are people listening? Are, are we listening to this? Now, there, there are a number of ways that we can go in this conversation. I mean, this is Marcus, and I know that this always happens once we get the conversation started, um, because I'm thinking, you know, about the ongoing debate that's going on now around reparations. How does this link into that debate? How could it influence and shape that conversation that's happening there? But you also talk in the book, Diane, about um, efforts to really promote marriage uh, among it within African-American communities. And you talk about federal programs, probably programs that exist on the state level. Can you talk to us a little bit about what some of those programs are? A lot of the, you know, you talked about the work that was done, especially under the Obama administration, to really kind of promote even the George W. Bush administration as well and others to try to really promote marriage and to deal with this decline that is occurring. What what are some of those programs? Yeah, and, and, and also along with that, and, and in addition to the text that you were just mentioned, mentioning, brother, the studies, the historiography you were mentioning, I think also about Orlando Patterson's notion of, 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 of social death and the ways in which, you know, slavery affects the kind of social death. And so I'm curious, you know, if, 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 if you might respond um, after addressing um, Darren's uh, questions, Diane, w- whether or not this, this, this forbidden Black love, as you call it, um, really was intended to affect 
within the within the African American community a kind of social death that mm-hmm. that revolved around the um, the um, the kind of atrophy, the, 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 the kind of calculated, engineered atrophy of Black love, Black relationships, Black marriage. Before I even address those two, and I think your, your question um, is related, I do want to say that this is, uh, you know, there's a, there's a fine line to tread in taking up a topic like this, because it, it relates to what you pointed out about the historiography of slavery, Daryl, that, um, Darren, sorry, that, um, that some studies can lean toward um, a pathologizing of the Black community. And other studies can emphasize in the midst of all of this terror, in the midst of the oppression and the, the lack of resources, Black people created resources, Black people found within their own culture, their own community, the strength to create stabilizing and pro-social institutions that keep the family going, right? Or that keep the community going. I want to be clear that in no way am I trying to contribute to any kind of pathologizing studies about Black people. What's, What's pathological is the system that brought people of African descent here as chattel, as movable chattel, and that enslaved them for nearly 250 years and then practiced a brutal system of control containment. Some might even say neo-slavery. Some people might not like that that term, but um, for another hundred years. And that currently today continues to benefit from anti-Black violence and racism in in our society. it's, It's very tricky because it can seem like, oh, Black women lack. They just lack. They lack. They lack husbands, they lack boyfriends, they lack love. They lack. I'm saying the system lacks. And, and the system has placed lack in Black women's lives and Black people's lives. And that's what's really important to understand. It's not just another book about what's wrong with Black people or what's wrong for the Black community. It's what's wrong about the system and the structures, the underlying system structures and causes of these disparities in our community. And that's important. And it, it gets me to the question about the program. So the federal government beginning with George W. Bush in particular, um, did support, actually, um, you know, has uh, spent millions upon millions. I mean, I think today it's even into a billion dollars on healthy marriage initiatives. And there have even been um, some um, programs um, that are um, organized around African-American healthy marriage initiatives based on critiques um, and, and, and complaints um, that were launched by those um, servicing um, low-resource couples or, or low-income couples. And, and, and these programs, they tended to revolve around marriage education programs. Um, they, were, they had an emphasis on low-income couples and even single um, um, families, right? So not just um, couples that were already married, even couples that were not married. Um, and so what would happen is um, different entities across various states, whether, you know, different organizations or government programs would be funded um, to provide these marriage education programs to to these couples. And what social scientists have found out who uh, have studied these um, programs is that they're not very effective. They're not doing the work. 
And part of the problem is misdirected policy. If we have, uh, Darren, if we have bad policy, I mean, if we have bad history, bad analysis, we have bad policy or bad implementation of policy. We just do. And, And so the problem with these programs is that they're not addressing the causes. They're not. One of the things that scholars found was that, well, some of the couples who were um, um, not struggling as much with finding gainful employment or having decent regular income in the family, they got more out of these programs than couples who were because they said, even though the the um, what I'm learning in the sessions might be helpful, I can't practice them when I'm trying to figure out how do I stretch my salary? How do I find um, some, you know, I'm working intermittently in construction or whatever it is. I don't have anything to pay rent at the end of the month. So, for example, in Baltimore, um, they developed programs that would also um, help couples with employment, um, educational, like financial management classes and, and those kinds of things. But I still feel that most of these programs don't address the fundamental problem. The fundamental problem is that Black people's wealth has been stolen for 10 generations or more in this country. That's the fundamental problem. It's not just that Black people need education about how to manage their finances. And some people might not even need that. They don't have enough. And it's not just about income. It's about wealth to fall back on. Because even people with income have emergencies, they need to make investments for posterity for their children, they need to pay for plan for college education, they need to plan for all kinds of, of, of issues that might arise in their relationships. And so now we're not just talking about income, we're talking about wealth. And scholars for a long time has even have even talked about wealth spread among black middle and upper middle class um, persons who have to take care of entrepreneurs and uncle and and send this niece or nephew to school. So even when Black people might be making a good, a solid, a strong income, what's the situation of their wealth? And that's why I talk about wealthlessness. The problem with these programs is that they are still treating symptoms. And they were also founded upon this idea that we're going to promote healthy and happy marriages and we're going to decrease poverty. You're not going to decrease poverty in Black communities and poor communities by promoting marriage. That's not going to happen. Um, You have to balance out the sheet with regard to wealth. And and that's what I don't hear um, governments discussing. And I think reparations is one of the very important arenas to continue to have this this conversation. Well, we want to take 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 this moment just to remind our audience that you're listening to the Waters and Harvey show. And we are in conversation with Dr. Diane Stewart, a professor of religion and African-American studies at Emory University. We are talking about her new book, Black Women, Black Love. And this has really become a very fascinating conversation. And Marcus, you and I have both said before, you we do show prep, but we know these conversations will just take on a life of their own <laughs> and go in their own direction. And as I was listening, 
listening to, to Diane talk about these programs, it, it, you know, Diane, I couldn't help but think of a quote from uh, that I re- recall from Dwight Eisenhower um, when he was talking about the bureaucracy itself and how bureaucrats in Washington developing these programs are sometimes out of touch with the people who the programs are supposed to benefit. And Eisenhower made the statement talking about farming uh, programs that, you know, farming looks easy when you're a thousand miles away and your plow is a pencil. And it sounds to me like that could be a similar, you could say something similar about programs that that government bureaucrats are trying to design to address the issue of marriage among African American, within African American communities. It sounds to me like African Americans need to be given the opportunity themselves to really talk about how these programs are are designed, and that may not always be happening. Other people are designing them uh, for, for us, but I hear that, um, and and that's I think something that we we need to discuss as well. But thank you for responding to, responding to that question about government programs. Now, one of the things that Marcus and I want to make sure we address here with you, uh, uh, there's so many issues that you raise in the book. But you talk about a major focus of the book is the difficulty that African-American women have finding, enduring and loving relationships, primarily with black men. Can you talk a bit about um, about why this is such a challenge for African-American women? Yes. Um, first and foremost today, and this is why I had to write a chapter on mass incarceration, is um the impact, the toll and that mass incarceration and its collateral consequences has taken on the depletion of the Black marriage market. Some demographers actually say that for every 100 unimprisoned Black women, we have 83 unimprisoned Black men. Others say it's the ratio is 100 to 91. But this is a serious issue. Um, Not just that so many Black men have been contained and confined to prison cages, um, but also how that follows them um, upon release. Um, The lack of support for their um, reintegration into society um, that makes them oftentimes not viewed as um, most attractive for marriage by by Black women. Um, So that's that's an important um, factor. Another one is Obviously, we've been talking about this um, widespread, what I call inherited poverty and wealthlessness impacting African-Americans from all walks of life today. Not just poor African-Americans, as I've said, um, but middle and upper class African-Americans as well. Um, One of the studies that looked at um, several hundred Black men and women um, found a sociological study. I was interested in scholars who were doing work with Black men to understand what what their perspective on marriage was. Because we often talk about, oh, all these men that are unmarriageable. What does that mean? What does unmarriageable mean? And one of the things that struck me in this study was that they found that African-American men and women look to their partner in marriage, the person that they're seeking, um, they look for someone who has um, a higher income than they do because they're needing a step up into that middle class. In other words, African-Americans know about their wealthlessness. They, They know, they don't need scholarly studies to tell them that they are struggling 
um, to find ways to be economically, financially mobile. And so people are not just not just women, even the men, they're looking for someone that are making 20, 20, 30,000 dollars more than they are to move them up. I mean, and that that was just so interesting. So what that made me wonder was if a black man is making thirty five thousand dollars a year and he is just I mean, a pro-social, healthy black man has a job, goes to work. Um, there is nothing unmarriageable about this person. He just happens to make $35,000 a year. If he's waiting for a black woman who's making 50,000 and she's waiting for a black man who's making 70,000, are people taking themselves out of the market because they don't feel ready and prepared? And we know from scholarly studies that people across race and ethnicity in America, and perhaps I would imagine in other countries, take themselves off the marriage market until they feel financially equipped to get married. So this is happening where people might have great qualities, might be mature enough and ready, but they don't have enough wealth or they don't feel they have the income level to prepare them to handle the responsibilities of marriage. So that's two. Two more that are really important patriarchal expectations, right? Um, which, which connect in with this, because if women are also looking for men who make quite a bit more than they do or enough so that they don't have to work in the marriage, that could be also a barrier, right? That these expectations that um, the husband, the man, and I'm of course, I'm talking about heterosexual marriage, um, the man is going to provide um, for the family financially, economically. Um, and, and if I work, it's supplemental income. And that has implications for how husbands and wives actually view and value one another, whether someone is a good husband. If the, those notions are tied into patriarchal expectations, that can be quite harmful, especially in a nation that has never allowed Black men to be patriarchs, never allowed Black men to be to have that patriarchal privilege. Let's just talk about beneficent patriarchy, right? To be good patriarchs to their family. So I think that that is also a problem and a barrier. And social scientists show, say, um, make point out that Black people live in e more egalitarian relationships than many other American um, racial ethnic groups. But part of the reason is that we have to. Black women have to work because Black men don't make enough for the family. If, if, if just because we're doing it doesn't mean that we like it. And so if we're if black women are having to work, but resenting that their husbands don't have enough money to take care of the family, that's not helpful either or don't make more money than they do. That's not helpful either. And then also um, colorism and phenotypic stratification, um, a very important um, current uh, study in 2009 found that for black women under 30, um, light skinned black women get married twice as much as dark-skinned Black women and 17% more than medium-complexion Black women. And when they do marry, and this is across ages now, when they do marry, fair-complexion Black women marry men of their class level or higher in higher numbers than dark-complexion Black women. So these are some serious barriers um, to Black women. Interesting point, brother. I know yeah. you had a question. Yeah, and, and, and then, you know, so, so I'm hearing you talk about, about patriarchy. Um, we talk a lot also in the book about um, images that society has of Black people, Black women, Black men. Um, I'm also thinking about the way you talk about religion in the book, particularly in relation to uh, what you specify as white American patriarchy. Mm -hmm. um, could you speak? Could you speak specifically um, ab about that issue 
of white American patriarchy as it may relate to the these sort of prevalent images that really white American society has um, of black women, black men, um, and, and how and how these two and how this sort of array of factors um, impacts uh, this whole question of black love, black marriage. This is a critical point because this is something that wasn't even an education for me. I had some sense of this, but didn't fully understand it until I did the research. The, 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 the view of marriage, the, the, the model of marriage that Black people have inherited, it's a Euro-Western, Anglo-American um, marital um, um, framework. And Black people, people of African descent, had to be socialized into this framework, into this cultural perspective of marriage. Um, during slavery, um, African descendants had their own understanding of bonding and coupling. They had their own terms for different stages of bonding and coupling. Um, they talked about sweethearting and taking up and abroad marriages because a good number, maybe even most, depending on the time period, were married to people who lived on different farms farms or different plantations, etc. And so after slavery, um, Black people were socialized through, through missionary activity, through the Freedmen's Bureau, and even required to marry according to the laws of the land, according to how marriage was practiced in America. And marriage in America was based on Euro-Western coverture, the Euro-Western coverture doctrine, which meant that when a woman married, she gave up all rights to inheritance, all rights to negotiate contracts. So what happened after slavery was Black women thinking that they could, you know, find labor, you know, get hired in, in positions. They couldn't get hired throughout the um, the South where tenancy was being practiced, tenant farming was being practiced. They couldn't find jobs unless they were married. They had to be married so that their husbands could control their finances, could control their labor. The Freedmen's Bureau required this and white um, landowners um, uh, absolutely participated. And so, and so this was an important period of learning patriarchal marriage, um, learning how to be married according to patriarchal conventions. Mm -hmm. So Black women were now being told that their labor had to be controlled by their husbands, their income. Their husbands were in charge of all of that, negotiating any kind of labor contracts and anything else. So this was very new for Black women. And, and what has happened is um, many of the Christian missionaries that were working in the South trying to um, teach Blacks how to read and educate um, the, the um, ex-enslaved community were often citing biblical passages to support um, this vision of marriage. And what we know from the work of biblical scholars is um, there's a wide gap between what was going on in the world that produced some of these biblical um, books, like the letters of Paul or the Deuteropauline letters, um, and what um, African-American or, well, at, at the time, let's say Euro-American um, Christian missionaries were envisioning those stories were about, right? Or those those writings were about. And African-Americans have internalized um, many of those kind of hermeneutical traditions of biblical interpretation and have absolutely bought in, in many respects, to this idea that um, the patriarchal household is a is a divine intention, is God's plan mm -hmm. for marriage among um, 
human beings. Mm -hmm. And um, many of the passages that are usually cited to support that have nothing to do with that, have nothing to do with that. What what does it mean when we learn that these communities um, um, that show up in the Pauline letters are communities that are are under extreme, living under extreme persecution? And and, and remember, Christianity is not a dominant religion at this time, Mm -hmm. right? It is the outsider religion. Mm -hmm. And so the, the Christians are trying to hide. They're they're trying to they're trying to not get noticed. So it's like, look, follow the laws, be submissive, do do what they do. Because if we start living our values and start living a different way, we're gonna we're gonna stand out. We don't want to stand out. All right. We don't want to stand out because we're trying to survive this thing. Right. Well, I tell you, Diane, this put that particular part of your book. I, I really hope that those who have the opportunity to read it, especially within the African American community, will pay real, real attention to what you're saying in that part of the book, because you're talking about different systems of how uh, relationships have actually developed among people of color, especially in you know coming from Africa, people of African descent, and I think that there's something that we can really learn about that. Marcus and I both have talked about how we as Americans have a tendency to think that we have it all figured out and we don't want to listen to uh, the possibility that there could be other ways of doing things. And so I can't help but think, too, uh, Diane, as I think about your book here and again you know as we come down on the end of the show time just goes too fast for us you know of of other things other ways to couple your book other studies that have been done that you know really create even more context around what you're saying in your book glenda gilmore's book on uh gender and jim crow which talks about how the dynamic especially for african-american women changed after uh jim crow segregation was really took hold in the American South or throughout American society, and especially after African-American men were disfranchised at the turn of the 20th century. And so looking at those roles that African-American women played in their communities in leadership roles, I think is something that we need to have a deeper appreciation of and understanding of. So I want to thank you for for this book. And I mean, one of the things that I'm sure Marcus and I would like to just hear is really quickly from you, what do you hope that you your book will accomplish, you know, for those who who have the opportunity to read it in this foray into this this important discussion. I want Black people and the nation to take this problem seriously as America's unrecognized civil rights issue, to begin to treat it as a civil rights issue and attach it to our activist agendas. Black people are phenomenal at activism, at civil rights. Black people have allowed um, so many other Americans to to experience and enjoy civil rights because of, uh, of, of being on the forefront of activism and fighting for justice. We need to attach this to our agendas for justice. So I want stakeholders from all um, um, arenas in American society to realize that we have to discuss this problem well beyond anything that has to do with any personal choice any individual Black woman or Black man makes about their love lives. And, and, and to change the conversation among Black women and Black men, this is very important to me, about one another with regard to love and marriage. Mm-hmm. To to, to instead of the cross blaming to look 
outwards of the systems that often put us in opposition to one another and to bond differently in trying to address this question, to bond in a healthy way to try to address this problem. Well, Diane, thank you so much again. Marcus, you and I are going to have to do a deep reflection show on this Absolutely. discussion because we don't have time to, to really go into an into our assessment of, of what our thoughts on the show. We had pages of questions for Diane. <laughs> Diane, this book was is so engaging. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for doing this, having this conversation Thanks with so us. Much, and, you know, as we end the show, Marcus and I just want to remind everyone that the Waters and Harvey Show is produced at Blue Ridge Public Radio in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can listen to our podcast podcast on bpr.org, the BPR and NPR One mobile apps, and on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. And you can follow us and get in touch on Facebook and Twitter. And Marcus, before we leave, I want to give you the last word here, brother, and I'll say my goodbye now. Yeah, I would just say it's important for us to think about the issue of Black love as a justice issue. Mm-hmm.